You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Deborah Eisenberg. Hello, can I please speak with Deborah Eisenberg? <laughs> that is me. Deborah, what a pleasure to speak to you. Well, likewise, likewise, Paul. How are you? I, I am definitely alive. How about you? Well, I would say it's pretty much a certainty. Um, it's a good thing. It, uh, you know, as, as, as Groucho Marx said, it, it does beat the alternative. Or th- exactly. Or so we think. We're not sure. What what am I interrupting? What are you up to? Oh, what am I up to? I'm actually um, looking out the window at all the incredible drama. I I uh, don't consider this an interruption in any way. Um, looking out the window at at this drama, do you mean the weather? I do mean that. Uh, because it could mean so many things. It it could, except that. Um, all my neighbors into whose windows I can see are all out. You know, I just a minute before calling you, my phone started to, to beep so strongly saying flood alert, flood alert. Uh, don't, don't go out until 5.30. So I'm, I'm thinking, thankfully, I had an appointment to speak to you on the phone. How much better that is? Yes, well, I'm very glad that I um, have, after all these years, provided some sort of function. You, you, you definitely have, and I, I want to tell you, Deborah, about my last phone call, um, which was with Alexander Chi, and we had the most magnificent and wonderful time, I think, together, or so it felt, and um, we we spoke about you. Partly because he quoted a line in his uh, book, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, which has become close to my favorite line anywhere. And he expounded on it, but I want to read it back to you, and you know the line, probably, and I'm just so curious to know what it means for you. You, you wrote... You meet people in your family you'd never run into otherwise. Uh, yes, I, it's from a story of mine called Some Other Better Otto. Yes. By the way, I just love Alex Chi. I think he's an amazing writer and um, an extraordinary human being. I haven't seen him for many years, uh, but... Uh, Decades ago, he was nominally a student of mine. I mean, he was a student of mine, but I don't really uh, consider myself uh, a teacher exactly, although I am. Well, you certainly are, um, at least in his words, the the deep impact um, you had on him uh, he writes about so beautifully, you know, in that very book, he says, she was a walking memory of life, of a life I'd left behind, and a vision 
of the life I wanted, and I fell head over heels in love with her. Oh, that's so beautiful. I am reading that book now, uh, but I'm... I'm astonished to find that that's something I have to look forward in it. Uh, it's so good, isn't it? He oh, it's so good. It, it, it's, it's so good. And, and we spoke about a, a passion, um, well, many different passions we, we share. And one of them is for the Italian writer Natalia Ginsburg. Oh, she is marvelous. Uh, I've only read one book of hers, and it was just uh, a year ago, uh, and I was I was really startled to realize that I had somehow not come across her work or not read it all this time. It's it, it really is beautiful. And she she has a, a, an essayistic, aphoristic quality um, that I think both you and. Alexander Scheer. Oh, well, that's, uh, that's a very nice thought. Thank you, Paul. And I will go back to that line if you, uh, if you would like me to, to expound on it. I, I really do because, um, it, 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 it made me laugh. And, which, which is, I mean, it's extremely funny. And there's some truth to it that is hidden, and I, I want to understand it better. Yes, well, I, I actually think the truth is completely self-evident. Um, I don't think it's... Uh, maybe you give it too much credit for mystery. I think it really... It really expresses exactly what the words say, which is uh, that that uh, you're born into a family. There are these people. There they are. There they are, and <laughs> you are. And you might be quite as surprised to them, and they might be quite as surprised to you. And and of course, one of the thrills of adolescence, I think is that you begin to meet people with whom you really have something in common, something very deep in common. Of course, it's important to also have superficial things in common, too, with people, and uh, that you can have with your family. But, uh, and, you know, of course, there are m many people who... Uh, share a very, very deep psychological and emotional connection with their, uh, their parents and siblings. But I think most of us have the relationship to them that we would have to other people, more or less in our general milieu. And and it's very, very instructive to go about getting to know the people in your family. I mean, that's how we are trained to learn to to understand other people and converse with other people and so on. Um, so there's nothing very mysterious about it at all. 
Well, we 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 learn from them also how to to read signs. Yes, and that, of course, I, I love the way you said yes. By the way, as if yes, a yes of recognition that is right, which immediately makes me think also, Deborah, that when you said it says exactly what the words say, nothing quite does, and that's why we want to expand and expound on it. That's also, I could say yes in exactly the same tone of voice there. (laughs) You just did. (laughs) Everything really is a translation of the inarticulable and in a way you could say that that's what writing that writing itself is an act of translating uh the inarticulable into something that can be shared or communicated or so we hope or so we hope uh, it can also of course be uh, a translation of the inarticulable into something completely incomprehensible but the but the sentence also in in some way means that were we not born into these this family, those people we become closest to would be unknown to us, and we live with them, and we try sometimes we try to really get to know them well, and they are also the source of many of our pains. Yes, that's true, and um, and they're the source of many of our pains, and also many of our joys in one way or another. And also, uh, for many years, they're the source of our instruction, or the primary source. And and that's where I was leading when I was saying signs, because. Children are, are so extraordinary at reading emotion and and reading on, on 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 one's face how one feels the slightest i mean they're they're extraordinary i mean to use a term that might be slightly highfalutin they are incredible semioticians yes well they don't really have that much else, in a way. I mean, children, I think, are not given sufficient credit for intelligence because they're extremely ignorant. I'm afraid there's no way around that. They just don't know much about the world and how it works. Uh, So they have to utilize all the resources that they have. And that comes with a gift, right? I mean, what, you, what you're saying here, which interests me so greatly, the ignorance also means that there is a candor and a freshness and an ability to, to see things maybe that later on when we know more or seem to know more is more obfuscated. Uh, of course, that is the great hazard of uh, of the education that it obscures, it conventionalizes, it blunts, uh, it 
goes hand in hand, of course, with um, its other qualities. By the way, your phone and my phone, which both just sent up such a racket, uh, were somewhat mistaken. The sun has come out, although it is thundering away. I'm sorry, I'm still looking out the window. No, I love, I, I, I love it. And, you know, th- this is, I always... The reason I love the phone is precisely because it it brings us in touch with what we can't quite see. I don't know where you are exactly, but you're telling me something is happening with the sky right now. But very much is happening. It's it's extremely dramatic and absolutely gorgeous. It's the sun is shining brilliantly, and yet there's a sort of large flannel gray area of the sky on the uh, on the west side. The sun do, is do, the... do you spend a lot of time looking out of the window? Well, frankly, I, I do. And and do you, you your writing desk is not next to a window? I wouldn't think. Well, it shouldn't be, I suppose. Um, well, I don't know about should or shouldn't. <laughs> but in fact, yes, there are far too many windows for me to look out. I do have a wonderful painting uh, that hangs right at eye level in front of my desk of a brick wall that a friend made for me. And uh, so I look at that quite a bit of the time. Oh, Oh goodness me! Um, this brings this brings to mind a literary reference. But be, before I unveil that that reference, tell me something about about that brick wall and why this friend felt you needed a brick wall. Uh, this is a, a a painter whom I I actually encountered. I mean, I known him slightly, very slightly for many, many years, but on New Year's Eve 2000, we were at the same party, and he said, what do you look at when you write? And at that time, I lived in an apartment whose only view was of brick walls, an air shaft and the walls of other buildings, and so I said, well, I look at a brick wall. And he said, oh, there is the most wonderful book of photographs by Saul LeWitt of brick walls, and I'll get you a copy. So the years went by, and wow. I would encounter this friend now and again, and he would say, oh, I've looked everywhere for that book, and I just can't find a copy. Finally, he said, well, it isn't in print any longer, so... I have painted something for you. And this was in 2011. So 11 years had gone by, and he remembered my brick wall. And in fact, um, oh yes, I suppose I eclipsed the salient part of this anecdote, which is that he said, well, how... How do you find 
looking at a brick wall while you write. And I said, well, it's wonderful. The, the wall is always different. It's always changing. Uh, there's play of light on it all day long. And it's completely fascinating. Um, so when I moved, he said, oh, well, you must miss your brick wall. And he painted me this beautiful little bit of a brick wall. You know, so um, what this conjures up are, are two references now. One is to possibly my very favorite short story, or just about, which is Bartleby the Scrivener, which is filled with walls and not, if you remember, there's not even the slightest bit of nature. Um, I don't think there's a tree or a leaf or anything that grows um, in in that Melville short story, and then the other the other references. When I was about sixteen or seventeen, I I suffered from meningitis, and my father um, sort of diagnosed that he had studied medicine in the early part of the twentieth century, really in in the nineteen thirties in Vienna, and had done a couple of years of medicine there, and took a look at me, and knew that I was suffering from meningitis, and so. I don't know if you know, but when you do have a certain type of meningitis, you have to spend time in the dark, and you slowly come to the light, and it's a kind of a very platonic disease, it seemed. And in a moment, I think, of humor, um, he offered me, um, I was 16 or 17, he offered me The Idiot by Dostoevsky to read, and it is filled with brick walls. Oh! And it's just, you know, I mean, Deborah, it's a story that comes to me totally out of the blue, as it were, uh, because of what you're evoking. And I remember being, I mean, so taken by by the whole of it, and now by your story. Well, that's so nice. I, I, I have to say, I've never read The Idiot, um, although it is the favorite Dostoevsky of my sweetheart. Um, but I think I've sort of hit it at each, I mean, every age at which I've begun it has been the wrong age at which to read it. But, um, uh, yes, uh, brick walls are, uh, perfectly conducive both to contemplation and as in Bartleby in action. Um, and I spend most of my time, really, I was just oddly this morning thinking of Bartleby because I've spent the summer in in really full Bartleby mode, in a way. Tell, tell me about that, because um, it is a story that, that matters to me greatly and that I think about all the time now, and I think many of us may be able to find ourselves uh, i don't i don't hate i hate the word of identifying but finding perhaps similarities between the world as we feel it now and the world as melville described it in bartleby so what does that mean for you yes uh, in fact i don't remember the story at all i only remember my uh 
impressionistic memory of it, if you know what I mean. But I do, I, I think the feeling of just being battered by, uh, by the world and partly by, well, that, it's coming from so so many directions. Oh, but when but but let let them let them all come. That, that's what happens when we speak. It's only one thing after another. I'm listening. All right. Uh, certainly, the dominant horror I, that so many people are are feeling really beaten into a kind of paralysis by is the appalling. Uh, political climate and terror of the future, uh, as well as horror about the present. And then also, when I think of preferring not to and rather resisting and shutting down, it's, uh, it's also associated with kind of onslaught of professionalization of everything, uh, and including art and writing, uh, professionalization, commodification. But the dominant, the dominant overstimulus of this period, I think, is what we would call political. I don't know if I mentioned to you, I think I might have, that I, I've been basically in my apartment the entire summer. Yes, you, you, you told me that you, you have not moved except in one instance, which I think you're probably going to tell us now. Well, exactly. Very intuitive view, intuitive view, um, that I did go to Brownsville, Texas, for just two days, yeah. and of course, I really couldn't, I I couldn't, there wasn't that much that I could see because the situation at the border is so chaotic and so hidden and just changing moment to moment, but it's so horrifying, mm. uh, the gleeful sadism of tearing children and parents apart is something that is very rarely seen. I mean, it was, of course, an element of slavery and an element of what's known as the Holocaust. And here it is again in our own country. And uh and the big shock for me we did I was tagging along with two friends and um we did have the opportunity to go to immigration court for a few hours and you know the regulations and laws have just been changing practically on a daily basis and just as we were there, not only had Jeff Sessions declared that uh, 
it was not a viable argument for asylum seekers to claim fear of domestic violence or gang violence, which leaves I don't know what. Um, that was one thing, uh, one big element of the situation at that moment. And another was that the zero tolerance law or regulation or whatever, uh, however it would be classified, uh, meant that there were no legal entries to the country, no legal entries. So you could not come in by the bridges. You could only swim or raft across the Rio Grande. So anybody who had made it across the border had come in illegally. So we're sitting in the rather splendid, very clean, beautifully painted courtroom in Brownsville, Texas, and 40 young men and women, I think everybody was under, say, 35, although I think nobody was under 17, came in Paul in chains. I mean, they, they weren't in chains. Um, and either they were sentenced to a short prison term after which they would be deported, or they were simply being deported. Um, they were chained and they were handcuffed for seeking asylum. And, you know, it's simply, it's simply intolerable. I know. Um, and, you know, you're telling me this story on the on the heels of of saying that we live in this Bartleby moment um where Bartleby, as everybody remembers, has but one sentence to say to his superior at any given moment, which is I would prefer not to and and yet, Deborah, I mean, the story you just told makes one one think, but action is necessary. Yes, it and, is necessary. And there we are invoking, quite pleasurably, um, Bartleby. Yes, it's, it's a, a horrible paradox, and I've been trying to actually examine examine this a bit myself um, and of course I mean this is this is an inflammatory thing to say but go ahead well thank you um, immediately I my thoughts turn to the German population uh, under the Third Reich. And, you know, the mystery of my adolescence and adulthood was what was, what on earth was the matter with those people? Why didn't they do something? I ask myself the same question every day. And, and here we are. And here we are. And now let's add to that <coughs> the the fact 
that the penalty for even even opposition, even dissidents, was death, and usually a horrible one. I'm thinking of Sophie and Hans Scholl and the White Rose. They distributed some leaflets, and uh, for this they were executed. Did you happen to see, by the way, the amazing documentary of, uh, about Goebbels' secretary that was uh, released rather recently. It was made, I think, in 2016. No, no. What What is it called? You know, I don't... It, it had some very banal title, and I don't remember it. I will find it. Uh, you'll find it. And it it's absolutely extraordinary. She was over a hundred, although... Uh, she certainly didn't seem to be, and she said she referred to Sophie Shaw, and um, she said something that was so both opaque and revealing. She said all that fuss over some leaflets. There was words to that effect. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, exactly what they were, but something to that effect. And you didn't know whether she meant, oh, why did they bother executing those young people over a few leaflets, or why did those young people risk their lives for a few leaflets? But at any rate, to return... It's chilling. Chilling. Oh, absolutely horrifying. But to return to us... We are not risking death to um, uh, to, to to what though? Even well, there's plenty, really. I mean, that's what I keep thinking. What? 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 No. But yeah. And I've always to myself. I'm really. This is what I'm scratching my head over these days. I've always. Uh, designated, for example, the Gentiles who who hid Jews uh, during the uh, years of Nazi ascendancy, those, those people who hid Jews in their closets, for example, I've always considered them heroes, which, of course, they did act heroically. But to say, oh, well, those people are heroes, in a way is saying, well, I'm not, so I could never do anything of that sort. But it has recently occurred to me that whether they were heroes or not, inherently, whatever that would mean, is utterly irrelevant, Mm. uh, because it's what they did that mattered, and they might not in any way have enjoyed what they did. Who wants to have somebody living in in their closet? Um, And they certainly, um, it's unlikely that heroic people think they're heroic. Yes, and with very good reason, because that is a very abstract category, which is, is... it's a kind of honorific that in a certain way is, it's 
it's utilitarian, but it's it's an abstraction. It's rather it's rather hollow. Frankly, you and I could each shield an undocumented immigrant, and we might not like doing it at all, but we could, and we could do things. I mean. I mean, why would we like it? And why would those people have liked it? And we wouldn't be facing death. They were. And and there are a lot of other things we can do. I mean, there are now many, many organizations that help immigrants uh, navigate an unfamiliar country in an unfamiliar language. Uh, there are many organizations that... Um, enable people to teach as volunteers, uh, to uh, work in schools, to work in prisons, uh, you know, to sharpen pencils, to go out and register people to vote. Well, I don't feel like doing any of it, but uh, apparently the time has come. In other words, how I feel... How much longer can you... Can you um, remain in a Bartleby moment? Exactly. I mean, that's one of the things you're saying. And, you know, Deborah, it's so interesting because all of this on the, on the heels, as it were, um, of the brick wall. And, you know, when, when I heard you speak about the brick wall, I, I was also reminded of a, of a passage which I, I love in, in your Paris Review interview, um, which I will read back to you and see how you feel about it now, because it, it seemed to bespeak to me of, of really your craft and your aspiration to do things that are called upon you to do which are not easy so there's a kind of a a one might say a virtue in difficulty or actually that difficulty is something necessary which you're also saying this moment calls for you say sometimes i have felt that i should write a novel rather than a story because i'm just so exhausted and the fixed costs for a story are exactly the same as for a novel. You have to continue a whole world each time. So after all, it would be easier than writing a collection of stories. But that doesn't seem like a very interesting criterion to me. Would it be easier? Even though I complain about the difficulty of writing, I actually don't want it to be easy. I want it to be something that I can't do. I want to be able to do something that I am not able to do. Yes, I, I do still, I still feel exactly the same. It, it's not, I want to be able to do things that I'm not able to do, not because it's painful, but because really, I think the great pleasure of being alive is to experience uh, life the 
that is your interior and the world, both of those things, in a way that you haven't. And you can keep that up for a whole lifetime, uh, a sort of constant adventure. It's, it's very exciting. And, and writing, I do complain about how difficult it is, and I do find it totally impossible. But it is quite, quite thrilling to do something that one moment earlier you had not been able to do. And I'm very grateful to have been given opportunities to do things that I'm not able to do. And uh, I feel that one of the real crimes of, of capitalism, basically, is to make it very, very difficult for people to do things that, uh, that are unknown to them, that are exciting, that require the development of ability. I mean, of course, it's very difficult to, uh, for example, work in an assembly line. That's terribly difficult. But it's the wrong kind of difficulty. It's the opposite of a kind of exploration. Did that make sense? Yeah. Oh no, it 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 does make sense, and I'm 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 taken by the idea that since you use the word capitalism, that our market economy, that our um, industriousness, doesn't allow, if I'm rephrasing this correctly, doesn't allow for these these places and spaces of pleasure where we would discover what it means to accomplish a task that is difficult, but that in in the process, nearly as if one were a craftsman or a potter um, making an object which demands a certain kind of skill, that that space is less and less available. <laughs> yes, I was, I was thinking that when you were speaking of Bartleby, I was, uh, I thought of uh, one of the big elements of feeling that one would prefer not to right now was the political, but the other is the more pervasive element of actually having our spaces continually, almost daily, restricted the space of our imagination, uh, the space of our time. Say something about, about I, I'm, I'm sorry to cut you there, but mm. say something uh, maybe about both, uh, the, the space of our imagination and the space of our time. Well, let's start with time because it's the easier one. I think people in general are required to work more hours than, uh, I mean, many of us. Of course, this is a wild generalization. But um, I, for instance, from the moment I wake up, I'm, <laughs> I'm deluged with email, as I'm sure you are, and uh, our 
many people uh, uh, in this world we live in. And it all is purports to be rather urgent. Right, right, right. Um, and and uh, and and should you not respond quickly, it is it is interpreted as if you didn't care. That's right. It's a slight, and this is quite new. I mean, I think people who are substantially younger than I am would have no idea what I'm talking about. But it used to take much longer to communicate with people. Well, there was there was what Mallarmé spoke about when he spoke about la poésie de la poste, the, the poetry of the post. Um, you know, you got a letter, you opened it, uh, there was a whole ritual um, which is disappearing. I know my father, at the, at the age of 96, seeing me respond to a, a message one after another, said to me, you know, the biggest mistakes I've made in my life have been when I've responded too quickly. Oh, that's wonderful, yes. Of, of course, you don't have the time to consider or to allow your response to develop as it would which is right and and you know i i also think of the the, the great essay by by benjamin uh, um in, i think it's in the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction but it might be in the storyteller he he quotes paul valery who who in a in a in an essay called Man's Conquest of Ubiquity, Valérie says something like, man no longer works at what cannot be abbreviated. Mm. Yes. And I really don't want the abbreviation. No, you want the... I mean, the, the quotation from, from the Paris Review is you want quite the opposite. Yes, and of course, so we've started with time, and as we know, time and space are are intimately related and overlapping, but, uh, and you could say that in this conversation, one is a metaphor for the other, right. but it concerns me a lot that... Um, art is now I, I myself used to worry about whether it was a frivolous use of my time for example not a frivolous use of the time of great artists but a frivolous use of my time and a frivolous use of the time of so many other people who could be contributing in other uh, possibly more conspicuous ways. But I no longer feel that way at all because I think it's one of the few arenas that's left to us in, in which we can enable ourselves or allow ourselves to relax or spread out into areas of the psyche, areas of the mind, areas of humanness that are not acceptable in uh, more restricted and more purposeful ways. And 
So, of course, I worry that arts programs in schools are being eliminated. I worry that arts programs for graduate students are increasingly professionalized and routinized. Uh, really, the activity that's called wasting time is is a precondition of doing doing any kind of meaningful uh, scrutiny, and I I am very concerned that it's being eclipsed. Partly because uh, let's have a look at what the uh, what rational people have done for us. It's the world is a terrible and terrifying mess. So it might be time to rely a bit more heavily on our irrational capacities. You know, um, as I hear you speak, I, I, a word comes to my mind, which is the word indolence. Yes. You Once again, you said yes. I, um, well, it's such, it's, for one thing, it's a beautiful word. Isn't it? I mean, just, just indolence. I mean, it's just, I mean, of course, I, I pronounce language in a strange way, but I find it so beautiful myself. Well, you, you actually have a, a very beautiful way of speaking, but it's a beautiful word, I think, no matter who speaks it. It has a beautiful cadence. And, and beautiful and, sounds. It's and we need it. Minorities. And, um, it also suggests beautiful images of sort of lying in some marvelous chair and, um. Or looking out of the window. <laughs> Um, tell me one other thing you 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 mentioned to me, Deborah, and we've only had a few email exchanges, as it were. Um, you you mentioned Brownsville, and then you mentioned that you you were reading a book that a very long book that is sort of um, having a, a, a what I I take as a, a big effect on you, which is the story of the stone which I have not read, and I wonder what you can tell me about it so far. Well, I, uh, I'm i a very, very slow reader, Paul, and um, I am not very well read at all, but that is something that I've wanted to read for decades, and I'd read an earlier and shorter English translation of it, some decades ago, it, it, but it's a translation from the German, and it's translated, the shorter one translated from the German is translated as The Dream of the Red Chamber, which is how it's translated in most languages as something that would, that is uh, parallel to the words The Dream of the Red Chamber. But the story of the stone is, it's five volumes, and it is Chinese, and it was written in the mid-1700s. 
the author whose name I will pronounce as undoubtedly incorrectly as Cao Shui-Chin died, I think, in his 40s, poor and drunken, although he had grown up very wealthy in um, a family of uh, Qing Dynasty aristocrats. And the book is basically set, it's semi, semi, semi autobiographical, I gather, and uh, is set in this very opulent uh, Qing Dynasty family. And it is electrifying, this book. It, the characters are more particular uh, than Dickensian characters, but of course they're much realer. And um, so charming and so alive, but it also, as well as being a huge, sweeping, realistic social novel um, and sort of family drama, it's also a postmodern Zen feminist novel. It's got everything. It's everything. And it, it was just real joy to read, pure joy. I've never read anything like it. And I don't know that there is anything like it. And I think it's been the most popular book in China for a couple of hundred years. So we're talking about a lot of readers. So I need to, to read the story of the stone and you, you need at some point in time avoid not reading the idiot. Um, we will find a way of, of doing both. What I would love to ask you, Deborah, if I could, um, you have a marvelous collection of stories coming out very, very soon with a most magnificent title, which made me, made me laugh uh, very much uh, called Your Duck is my duck and it has one of uh, such a beautiful cover i just can't wait for people to see the the book itself it's a beautiful thing to hold um a beautiful beautiful cover of paul clay and um what i'd love you to do if you're willing that is is to to read the first three pages of your duck is my duck if you have it handy it's very easy to find in my apartment and I'm so happy that you uh, like the cover oh I love the cover I love the cover I love the cover connected with the title I mean it really you know in these moments which are gloomy and doomed filled as we have said um, such a cover um, does help a tiny bit. Yes. I um, I take credit for choosing the image, although for a year I'd been saying, whatever the cover is, I don't want any ducks on it. No ducks, no ducks, no ducks. And then I chose this image. Well, I will 
certainly read you the first three pages, and I'm not sure. I'll just start, and why don't you just hold up a sort of white hanky when it's time for me to stop? It it just ends with a with a line. Lots of their guests did that. Okay. Good. Um. Way back, oh, not all that long ago, actually, just a couple of years, but back before I'd gotten a glimpse of the gears and levers and pulleys that dredged the future up from the Earth's core to its surface, I was going to a lot of parties. And at one of these parties, there was a couple, Ray and Krista, who hung out with various people I sort of knew or anyhow, whose names I knew. We'd never had much of a conversation, just hey there kind of thing, but I'd seen them at parties over the years, and at that particular party, they seemed to forget that we weren't actually friends ourselves. Ray and Krista had a lot of money, a serious quantity, and they were also both very good-looking, so they could live the way they felt like living. Sometimes they split up, and one of them, usually Ray, was with someone else for a while, always a splashy public business that made their entourage scatter like flummoxed chickens. But inevitably they got back together, and afterward you couldn't detect a scar. Ray had a chummy arm around me, and Krista was swaying to the music, which was almost drowned out by the din of voices in the metallic room and smiling absently in my direction. I was a little taken aback that I was being, I guess, anointed, but it was up to them how well they knew you, and I could only assume that their cordiality meant either that something good had happened to me that was not yet perceptible to me, but was already perceptible to them, or else that something good was about to happen to me. So we were talking, shouting really over the, over the noise, and after a bit I realized that what they were saying meant that they now owned my painting, Blue Hill. They owned Blue Hill... I had given Blue Hill to Graham once in a happy moment, and he must have sold it to them when he up and moved to Barcelona. Blue Hill is not a bad painting. In my opinion, it's one of my best. Still, the expression that I could feel taking charge of my face came and went without making trouble for anyone, thanks to the fact that obviously there were a lot of people in the room for Ray and Krista to be looking at, other than me. How are you these days, they asked, and at this faint suggestion that they'd been monitoring me, a great wave of childish gratitude and relief washed over me, dissolving my dignity and leaving me stranded in self-pity. Why did I keep going to these stupid parties? Night after night, parties, parties. Was I hoping to meet someone? No one met people in person any longer. You couldn't hear what they were saying. 
except for the younger women who had high, piercing voices and sounded like Donald Duck, from whom they'd evidently learned to talk. When had that happened? An adaptation? You could certainly hear them. It was getting on my nerves and making me feel old. I'm exhausted, I told Ray and Krista. I can't sleep. I can't take the winter. I'm sick of my day job at Howard's photo studio. But on the other hand, Howard's having some problems. Last week there were three of us, and this week there are two. And I'm scared I'm going to be the next to go. And as I told them that I was frightened, that I was sick of the winter in my job, I understood how deeply, deeply sick of the winter and my job, how frightened I really was. Yeah, that's terrible, they said. Well, why don't you come stay with us? We're taking off for a beach place on Wednesday. There's plenty of room and you can paint. We love your work. It's a great place to work, everyone says so. Really serene. The light is great, the vistas are great. I'm having some trouble painting these days, I said. Not really, I don't know. Hey, everyone needs some downtime. <laughs> You'll be inspired. Everyone who visits is inspired. You won't have to deal with anything. There's a cook. You can lie around in the sun and recuperate. You can take donkey rides down into the town or their bicycles or the driver. What languages do you speak? Well, it doesn't matter. You won't need to speak any. Naturally, I assumed they'd forget all about their invitation. So I was startled the day after the party to get an email from Krista asking when I could get away. One of their people would deal with the flights. I could stay as long as I liked, she said, and if I wanted to send heavy working materials on ahead, that would be fine. Lots of their guests did that. Oh, it's glorious, Deborah. Thank you, Paul. It's really, really, really glorious. And now, um, you know, when I when I sit in restaurants after reading reading the, the, those pages, Donald Duck is everywhere. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. I, and it happened all of a sudden. Well, and it's you know the the grain of the voice that that very high pitched voice. Um, I, I often think that I could never fall in love with someone whose voice I didn't love. Do you know, I think voices are very, very underrated as as erotic stimuli. They really are. And someone else I spoke to recently, we had a whole conversation on, on voice with Terry Tempest Williams. Oh, interesting, yes. She's so she's so interested in 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 precisely that quality. That that quality that, I mean, in in a way, um, it's through the ear that most things happen. Well, I had never thought of that, but I think that is true for me. It's ear first. Deborah, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and I send you really all my very best. And I will leave you now to to look some more out of the window. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much. It really has been joy to talk to you. And I um, well, we'll speak soon again. And and 
In the meantime, I hope that many, many people will enjoy Your Duck is My Duck, both what's in it and what's on the cover. Well, thank you so much. Take care of yourself. You too. Bye-bye.